All right, let's go Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, we will have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room with little racks underneath the seats. Uh, if you don't own one, don't have one that you can call yours, take that one. Uh, I think it's an incredibly easy thing to do. We, we believe that God uses his word for all kinds of important things, but chief among all those really important things is that he uses it to reveal himself to his people. Uh, and so we want you to know God. We want everything in and about and around your life to be shaped by that knowing of him. And so if you don't have a Bible, take that one. I will legitimately call it the best part of my day. All right, so we made the intentional effort last week to kind of drag our feet just a little bit before we hit the go button on all things uh, Christmas season. And we wanted to give some on-purpose attention to this idea or this practice of Thanksgiving as pre-Advent, something that sets the table for a proper understanding of Advent. Uh, but as you can clearly see, the go button has now been hit, all right? Uh, we have decked our halls with boughs of holly, and it's time to sing our fa-la-la-la-las, right? That, that's how the song goes, I think. I've been told. Um, and so, um, I, 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 so what do we do now? Now that, now that we have rushed into this season of, of tidings of joy, what do we do now? Well, honestly, I think that this is the rubber meets the road moment for us. I think this is where we actually prove some things. Um, and so if, if Thanksgiving is, is nothing but uh, nothing more to us than some kind of momentary thing, then it'll just kind of be done with and, and, and go away. I think this is actually the moment where we prove that Thanksgiving for us is more of a posture than posturing. And if you don't know the difference between those two, go look them up in a dictionary later. They're not the same thing. All right, but this is the moment where we really prove that Thanksgiving is something more to us than some momentary thing. Because if it's some momentary thing, then it'll feel quite natural for us to kind of do our little celebration and then move on past that to the next thing, right? That, that's just kind of the, the way we operate. And so um, you just slap a hashtag blessed on your Instagram post and then everybody in the world knows that you fulfilled the cultural mandate to be thankful. It's kind of the world we live in. But if Thanksgiving really is a posture before the Lord, then it will obviously bleed out into the very next season, this season that we happen to find ourselves in right now, right? And this is another place, add it to the list, where the Christian tradition of Advent proves itself to be wholly different from the modern idea of the Christmas season. Advent means the coming or, or the arrival. It's just a Latin word. And th those of y'all who have, who have been around for a while, you've been here as we've kind of gamed out this difference, this reality over the last several years. This is actually my sixth Christmas here, believe it or not. All right? All right, and so for a lot of people, a lot of people, uh, this season is marked by a ramping up, Right? It's marked by a ramping up, a perpetual rush for more. And so you got to try to squeeze in just one more party, squeeze in just one more present, squeeze in just one more dessert on the dinner table. You know, that kind of, kind of posture and, 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 and kind of tone. And so even beyond just adding another whatever, uh, we got to even take the next step and, and we got to make sure that the presentation's even bigger and better than last year, right? Or am I, that only happened in my house. Make it bigger, make it louder. For, for the world that we live in, it's always advance, never retreat. Make sure people remember your Christmas celebration as the Christmas celebration. Until next year when you've got to raise the, raise the bar again, right? Now see, for a lot of people, the Christmas season 
as we commonly, culturally understand it, it's just a really long, seemingly endless list of things to do. Right? It's a really long list of things to do. And so, tasks to accomplish, people to try and make happy, ignore the stress and put a smile on your face because we're supposed to be excited about this time of the year, right? That, that's, that's the game that we play. And so everything's got to be ramped up even more and more. And so Hallmark's got to turn out 34 new TV movies this year instead of the 30. Instead of the 30 they did last year. Which is funny. I've got a theory. They only have 12 actors. And so every guy is going to get a chance to, to fall in love at the last moment with every single girl. Just rotate the cast. But this is the world we live in. You got to make it bigger, you got to make it better, you got to add more, right? Every single year. You can crash when you get to January. Ignore the credit card debt, ignore the family blow ups, and try to act like you're having a good time. Or is that only my house? But now we got to play the game, right? But then along comes Advent. And Advent, man, it works in the other direction. It's, it's still a tempo change, but instead of ramping up, Advent is all about taking your foot off of the gas pedal. It's a, it's a stripping away of things that distract us from what it is that we actually care about. And for the Christian, what we care about the most is that the infinitely holy God came near. He came near. Crazy is that? He came near. It, it, it's been my experience that regardless of how excited people always tend to get the Buddy the Elf types, no matter how excited they are at the beginning of the Christmas season, it's been my experience that a lot of people, maybe not all, but a whole long list of people are really ready for Christmas to finally be over by the time we get there. Only my house? What begins as excitement and wonder often ends up turning into exhaustion and frustration. Frustration at yourself, saying that thing you swore you wouldn't say this time. Frustration at others, I can't believe they brought them. At all the things you hoped would happen, but they didn't happen. We ask the same question every single year because it's a question that our culture I believe, forces us to ask and answer. Could it be that our frustration and our exhaustion and all, our, all of our repeatedly unmet expectations about this season have more to do with our approach to the season rather than the season itself? I've got a theory. I believe that the chief reason that people often get burnt out by the Christmas season is because they place their hope in the accoutrement surrounding it rather than the story it flows out of. I think it's a good theory. It's also crazy to me. One, because the accoutrement can't carry that kind of weight. Um, you're asking decorations that adorn a season to instead act as pillars for a season. That's just architecturally unsound. They, they, don't, they don't have those kind of legs. But secondly, placing our hope in the accoutrement is also crazy because 
Well, the story that we're celebrating is the greatest story ever. The greatest story ever. There is nothing in the world that takes a backseat to this story. Not even close. And the simple truth is is that if, if we were only smart enough to keep our eyes on the ridiculousness of this story, we would never, and I mean ever, be in danger of being distracted by tiny things like decorations and adornments. So that's what I want to do this morning. I want to lean into the ridiculous. Uh, We've got some other guys this month who will kind of help us look at some other pieces. Garrett next week is going to help us look at the beginning of uh, the birth narrative. Bob Finn will help us uh, the week after that kind of flesh out some more big picture realities. I'm going to use my time this morning to point us to an absolutely massive promise in the Old Testament. An absolutely massive promise in the Old Testament. So join me in Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah is a prophet to to God's people, the the Jews living in the land of Judah. And he's writing to them about 700-ish, depending on when you date some things, about 700 years before uh, Jesus comes onto the scene. And so in verse 1 of chapter 11, Isaiah says this, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. All right, so let's call a time out there. If you're new to the Bible, that is a sentence that likely leaves you with a lot of questions, right? And so, like, and it should, because, like, anytime you jump into a story in the 11th chapter, you're obviously missing a lot of a really important context. So what's the important context? Well, this is not the first time that Isaiah has used the imagery, the word pictures of trees being cut down and stumps being left to remain. Uh, dead stumps just kind of lay in there. In fact, he's used this word picture over and over and over again several times now by the time he gets to chapter 11. And so the nation of Judah is not in a good place right now. It's kind of a giant mess, actually. Uh, we spent a couple of months discussing Israel, their neighbors to the north, uh, during our Jonah series. You remember that? All right. And so uh, a lot of people believe uh, that depending upon when you date Jonah, uh, Isaiah is either playing out at the same time down south or a genera- one to two generations later. So it's pretty close. They're, they're not far apart in time. I'm in the one generation later camp, if you care. All right. um, but the nation of Judah is not in a good place right now. Uh, and so Judah is not faring any better than wicked, sinful Israel to their north. There's rampant sin everywhere. There's idolatry everywhere. They're chasing down the absolutely wrong paths. And so uh, and they do a little bit better job of repenting than Israel, their northern neighbors did, uh, but there's still just a giant mess. And so Isaiah begins, Isaiah begins to use this picture of a tree being cut down to talk about the nation of Judah and the mighty conquering nation of Assyria. Assyria was only a burgeoning empire in Jonah's day that folks were beginning to pay attention to. But if Isaiah is coming one to two generations later, it means Assyria has now grown up a little bit, and they're no longer a burgeoning empire anymore. They're exactly who we know them to be, a ruthless and domineering nation that is actively conquering all their neighboring lands. They're the bad guys in the story. And the threat... The threat that's already been made before Isaiah gets to chapter 11 is that the axe is about to be laid to the tree. That God is going to deal with his haughty and idolatrous people and he's going to use the ruthless empire of Assyria to accomplish his 
purposes. And if you're thinking to yourself, well, wait a second, I th- we spent all that time in the, in the Jonah series kind of celebrating God's boundless compassion, right? And how he was patient on them in spite of their sin and even blessed them in spite of their sin. And so, like, like why the change? Has God changed his mind? And the answer is no. No, God hasn't changed a thing. The answer is that he hasn't changed. God is, God is, God's abounding compassion is present in his blessing, and God's abounding compassion is equally present in his pruning. He does both with compassion. And so in Isaiah chapter 6, the, the chapter of Isaiah that probably most everybody here, at least more people than any in here, are probably familiar with, Isaiah is calling, and in, in the, day the, uh, the day the king Uzziah died, I saw the throne high and lifted up, you know, that, the calling of Isaiah, it's the one that we kind of all know. At the end of that chapter, or, or towards the middle of that chapter, I guess, verse 13, it says, uh, God tells Isaiah, And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. So Isaiah is told that the tree will be cut down, but the stump is left there to tell the story. It's there to tell us specifically that it's not the end of the story. And so in chapter 11, Isaiah reintroduces this stump. There's something growing out of it. Read verse 1 again. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So God's people are given a picture here of a brand new baby tree springing forth out of a dead stump. What was a picture of being cut down is now changed. But now it gets even weirder because this stump has a name. What's its name? Jesse. Who's Jesse? Well, Jesse, if you're new to the Bible, is the father of King David. And every good Jew in Isaiah's day, Isaiah's original audience, they knew who Jesse was. They knew exactly who Jesse was. Jesse was the father of the great king of Israel. The the king that everybody in the land of God's people just begged God to bring them back to. Could we only please get back to the days of David? That's what they wanted to return to. The king who, by the way, was promised by God to sit on, to have an heir sit on his throne forever. And so the picture that we're given here in Isaiah 11 is that there is a coming king, a king out of the line of David who will rise out of the desolation. What a picture, right? When all hope is lost, this king, this coming king will spring up and provide hope once again. It's an amazing story all, all on its own, right? Like, like what, was, what seemed dead has now got new life. That's a really awesome story, one that's worthy of celebration, but we can also start adding a lot of layers to it. In fact, Isaiah does exactly that. So this, this tree isn't kind of magically replaced by, by some other mighty oak. Like Isaiah doesn't turn around one day and say, like, oh, there's a tree back, right? What happens? There's a tiny, incredibly fragile a little shoot coming up out of the stump. It, and it teaches us that there is a king coming, but this king is coming in humility. 
This king is coming in humility. This king is coming in a way that will be overlooked by those in power. He's coming in a way that will be underestimated by those who only respect mighty oaks. But it's not only humility that this king comes in. Look at verse 2. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And the spirit of wisdom and understanding the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Verse 3, And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. So this king may be coming in humility, but this king ain't no pushover. I mean, that's what we see here, right? Isaiah, he paints the picture that this king will be a perfect king, and he will establish a perfect kingdom. I mean, did you see some of the things that Isaiah listed off there? In verse 2, we're told, we're told that the Spirit of the Lord will be upon him. The ESV, it capitalizes all those S's for a reason. What's the reason? We're talking about the Holy Spirit here. And because we're talking about the Spirit, it means that we're talking about each of these things in perfection. These, these things aren't just a handful of nice things that this king might be good at. They are Holy Spirit-empowered character traits. It's who he is. Perfect wisdom, perfect understanding, perfect counsel, perfect might, perfect knowledge, perfect fear of the Lord. Isaiah tells us that he will be a perfect king and he will establish a perfect kingdom. Which is really awesome, I guess. But then in verses 3 and 4, we see that this king will also judge with perfection as well. Absolutely massive thing when you stop and think about it. And so we're going to stop and think about it like, Earthly judges? Are earthly judges capable of being perfect? Yes or no? Not even close. Earthly judges cannot be perfect because earthly judges will always have insufficient understanding. Period. It doesn't matter how many of the details of the case they know. They cannot know perfectly, and so they cannot judge perfectly. They don't see all the angles, and they don't have complete understanding of the intents and motives of someone's heart. But this king, he will rule and judge perfectly because he does have full understanding. He does see all the angles, and he does have complete and perfect knowledge of every motive and intent. And so in Isaiah 4, in verse 4, Isaiah tells us that this, this king will be both perfectly gentle with the meek and perfectly righteous and act perfect justice on the wicked. Everyone will get exactly what they deserve. I, I, I don't know about you. I really want to live in a world like that. Am I alone? Is there anybody else out there that wishes that you could look out on our current political landscape and find a ruler who is perfectly righteous and made every single decision in accordance with perfect wisdom and perfect justice? I want to live in the kind of kingdom where 
those who are taken advantage of are taken care of, and those who seek to take advantage of others are taken care of. Anybody else? It's a glaring problem, though. The glaring problem is that earthly kings are woefully insufficient to do either of those things in perfection. Just like judges, kings aren't perfect either. Myself especially. So my own sin-filled heart tells me that this king must therefore be unearthly. Earthly kings can't get the job done. So what we need is an unearthly king. And guess who's about to walk onto the scene? If you had any doubts about it before, I say it turns up the volume in verse 6. Verse 6. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea." In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a seal for, all, for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. So what in the world is going on there? Like, did you see some of those things? Like, if you're reading this and you're thinking to yourself, well, that sounds preposterous. Congratulations, you're reading it correctly. You're picking up exactly what Isaiah is laying down. Like, I, I don't know if I have to explain this to you, but we don't live in a world where wolves and sheep take naps together. Anybody seen that? Like, a wolf may do that after he's eaten the sheep, nice little sheep coma. But we don't live in a world where they go, you know what, a nap sounds good, let's just cuddle up. We don't live in a world where babies can play in the poisonous snake pit and come out unharmed. So what in the world is going on here? Isaiah has given us the incredibly clear picture that when this king comes in his fullness, this world will be turned upside down. It will be turned completely upside down. We often talk in our culture about peace in our world. And usually... We, we do so on an earthly level, or as far as I'm aware, we only do so on an earthly le level. We, all we ever really mean by the word peace is the absence of conflict or strife or war in some other far-off place, right? But Isaiah here, he describes a scenario that's so outrageously uncommon that we kind of struggle to imagine it, right? That didn't, that didn't compute. That doesn't make any sense. Newsflash. Wolves eat sheep and dangerous snakes bite. That's what they do. And Isaiah goes, not in this kingdom they don't. Not under the reign of this king they won't. Perfect peace. A shoot will grow up out of the stump of Jesse and he will make, hear me, all things new. All things. 
The stump is not the end of the story. Yes, God's people are marked by sin. They are marked by their absolute failure to be obedient to God. But the abounding compassion of the Lord is far greater still. And he is not finished with them yet. He's not finished with them yet. He's still doing work in them. And so 700 years before Jesus stepped onto the scene, Isaiah is already promising that this kid is going to change literally everything. Everything. It's not just some puffed up language to decorate our Christmas story. This kid is establishing a forever kingdom that is turning the world upside down. And, and, so, and not just for Judah, we're told in verse 10 that for the nations they'll come to inquire. Judah is a mess at the moment, and their future destruction has already been promised even before it happens. But there's already a shoot growing out of the sum. And so what we celebrate in the Christmas story is so infinitely bigger than any decoration we could ever dream of throwing on top of it. We're talking about a new forever kingdom here. Reigned over by the only one who could ever be the perfect We celebrate the coming of the perfect king and his perfect kingdom that folds the Gentiles in with perfect justice and perfect righteousness forevermore. And it's in this moment that the astute reader will start going, well, wait a minute. Because I can look around. We're celebrating all these things that this kid came to do. And I don't know about you, but I don't see a whole lot of perfect kingdom in my rearview mirror. I don't see a whole lot of perfect kingdom out in front of me. Where's this perfect kingdom at? Was Isaiah wrong? Is Jesus not everything we hoped and dreamed he would be? There's still imperfect leaders and imperfect kingdoms. There's still wicked people who take advantage of the vulnerable. I, I don't know if I have to, like explain this to you. I'm not going to send my kids out to go play in the, the cobra pit today. It's not on their to-do list. So was Isaiah wrong? Is Jesus not everything we hoped he would be? And, and it's here that we need to remember that Isaiah didn't turn around and see a fully grown tree. There's a shoot. A tiny fragile little shoot. This king came the first time in humility, but he will one day come again in glory. What we celebrate in the Christmas story and at Christmas time is part of a larger uh, story of God saving a, a people for himself, right? And so a larger story of God establishing a perfect and forever kingdom. And this story isn't over yet. And so we say it every single year, and we say it every single year on purpose. The baby came to die, right? It's cute and all. We all get excited about the little baby, baby came for a purpose. He came to die. We celebrate Christmas so that we can celebrate Good Friday and Easter. But listen, we can add another layer on top of that. It's not, it doesn't end there. We celebrate Easter because we also have the expectant hope of living in and celebrating forever his forever kingdom. A kingdom that will bring with its perfect king the perfect fullness of love. 
and the perfect fullness of joy and the perfect fullness of peace forever. There's no question about it. Advent runs a totally different play than what we normally think of as the Christmas season. They're not in the same ballpark. They're aiming at entirely different things. And so let me go ahead this morning and attack the top of the mountain, the fort sitting on top. You heard the movie It's a Wonderful Life? Ever popped up on your radar? It's a cute little movie. Think about it compared to this story, though. What, are there similarities or are they all differences? Town comes together and helps poor old George Bailey, just like he'd helped them for years. Spoiler warning if you hadn't seen it yet. Town comes together and helps poor old George Bailey. His efforts are finally vindicated. He discovers that his adventure was under his nose all along. Right? The bad guy gets, is staved off for a little while, and we learn that all your problems really aren't so terrible if you've got good friends and family by your side. Roll credits. What a tearjerker. It doesn't pain me at all. I'd, I'd rather have the very real story of King Jesus and his perfect kingdom any day of the week. They're not even close. I'd rather have the story of the infinitely righteous and lovely king who makes all things new as he rules with perfect justice on the wicked and perfect mercy on the weak. It's a, but, it's a much, much better story. They're not, they're not in the same category. And that doesn't mean that It's a Wonderful Life is a bad movie or we shouldn't enjoy it every Christmas. I promise you, my wife will make me watch it at least once. No one is served by me getting up here and ranting on secular culture for a while. That doesn't do anything. But the simple reality is that by keeping our focus on the real thing, the story that trumps every other story, it will lead us to never be too impressed by the knockoffs. We'll give them some attention, but they'll never get our love. They're just not as shiny as what Jesus is doing. Fixing our attention on the real thing, it guards us from being distracted by or pouring too much energy and attention into the accoutrement. No matter what form that accoutrement comes packaged in or might come in. Uh, can, can I say something out loud that we all kind of know but just doesn't, never gets said often enough? Like, despite what the TV commercial tries to sell you, it doesn't matter how much time and money you spend trying to chase down the perfect gift. It's never going to be perfect. Like, we all know that. We just never say that. It's, it doesn't have a chance of being perfect. It's not because your efforts weren't thoughtful, and it's not because the giftee wasn't like super appreciative. It's because accoutrement can never carry the weight of what eternal stories are designed to carry. It can't carry that load. It can't carry the weight of that kind of hope. Adornment is only wonderful as long as it's pointing to something better. Decorating and showing off some other more valuable thing than itself. And, and the moment you try to turn decorations into the star of the show, you turn it into something that's tacky and it's just a giant distraction for everybody, right? We've all been in those situations. The moment that that, that decoration took a step too far and it's like, oh, now it's a problem. Maybe you're more inclined to 
to try to be the great hostess this Christmas. So you pour yourself out trying to make sure everything is perfect, right? And then what happens when it's not quite so perfect? For a lot, your world falls apart. And if somehow you manage to pull it all off, less people were impressed by it than you hoped for, then your world still falls apart. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't use gifts and passions that God has given you to make the table setting with excellence. Have fun with it. Do it as your unique way, special way to love and serve others. That's a good and holy thing. It's just a terrible, terrible idea to try to find value in what you and others might think of it. It's a dead end. Don't try and shift the good thing into the place of the ultimate thing that never ever goes well, whether we're talking about Christmas season or the other eight months of the year. It never goes well. And so we ask the question every single year because our culture demands that we ask the question every single year. What if the frustration and exhaustion and repeatedly unmet expectations of the season have more to do with our approach to the season than the actual season itself? And so by simply shifting our focus for the month, taking our foot off of the gas, slowing down, lighting a few candles even, by taking our focus from the cultural trappings to God's good gift of Advent, taking our our focus from the stuff on the periphery to the unrivaled Savior in the center. Maybe instead of getting burned out by trying to pull it all off, we might actually be empowered in this season to celebrate with an otherworldly hope. Doesn't that sound like a better option? I'm convinced it's a better option. We might be forever changed by the faithful promise of an otherworldly love and joy. It sounds like a better option too. We might also rest forever waiting patiently for the advent of an otherworldly peace. I know that's a better option. So what do we do with this? How can we respond to, to God's word this morning, right? Like, like, especially if you don't do a very good job at, you know, in the chasing the, the primary thing, peace, right? Like, if that's a struggle for, for us, like, how do we actually respond to, to God's word this morning? So if you're here and you're already a follower of Jesus, our response is the same as it is every single week. We, we repent of sin and we lean into what God is revealing about himself in the text, right? And this week, I think he is showing us that he is playing a much, much bigger fix than what we are often paying attention to in this time of the year. We don't just celebrate the coming of a baby. We celebrate the shoot sticking up out of the stump. It's going to change everything. What what he has called us to celebrate this month is, yes, one piece of a much larger story, but that larger story is literally the greatest story ever, and it changes the world. Christmas isn't some cute little religious story for those who have a pious streak. No, it is the birth announcement of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who made provision to reconcile you to himself. Not by sending some agent on his behalf, but by coming himself. God came near. 
And so by simply leaning into the celebration of the most important parts of the Christmas story, what Advent is designed to do, it helps us, helps everything else fall into its proper place. We actually don't really have to try that hard because we just don't care about those things as much. We don't have to fight it off. We just love the better thing the most. And like every other season on the calendar, we navigate this season by keeping our eyes on Him and what He is doing. The other stuff will just work itself out. I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. That's a time that we set aside for us to, to put some action to whatever God might be stirring in our hearts. And so if you want somebody to talk to, I'll be, be down front. But w- listen, what if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet? What if you're, uh, I don't know, maybe you got dragged to church by your friend, you finally told him yes to get him off your back and you're here. Or what if maybe you're just curious about the whole Christian thing, following Jesus thing, and you got some some questions, all right? So uh, listen, you can respond this morning by meeting Jesus, period. Like that's what we want to do. We want to introduce you to Jesus, the one that this whole Christmas celebration is ultimately about. We haven't spent much time, or at least as much time yet, as uh, pointing to the why of him coming. Why did Jesus come the first time in humility? Well, it's because the baby came to die, right? And so the Bible teaches that because of our sin, that we are all separated relationally from a holy and perfect God, and that we are all owed the righteous and just punishment for that sin. The Bible calls it death. The Bible also teaches that God is rich in mercy and that he loves us with an incredibly great love, that even when we are dead in our trespasses and sins, it is by his grace through Christ that we are saved, that we are brought to life. The eternal Son of God, Jesus, he put on flesh and dwelt among us. He came in humility as a baby. In Philippians, we're told that he took on the form of a serpent, but we're also told that he came for a purpose. Jesus lived sinlessly, and he died as a sacrifice to make payment for our sin. The debt was paid on your behalf. Jesus was raised again from the dead as a vindication of his perfect righteousness and as a down payment for our own future resurrection. And now as the king who conquered sin and death, He calls on you in this moment to respond to him in repentance and in faith, to turn away from your sin and to turn to him as Savior and Lord. And listen, you can do that today. I would love, absolutely love to be helpful to you as you place your trust in Jesus. I'd love to help you figure out what that response of faith looks like. And so if you want to talk, I'll be down front. But whoever you are and however God is calling you to respond to his word this morning, let's respond together right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for a massive promise hundreds and hundreds of years ago. A promise that saw the first little bit of its fulfillment 700 years later in the birth of our Savior. But still is awaiting its final fulfillment today. Thank you for sending your Son not only as king, but as a humble king. And as a righteous king. As an infinitely holy and good king. And we long for the day when he will finally make all things new. Help us to see this Christmas that we we don't just celebrate the coming of a baby. We we celebrate the, the birth announcement of the Savior who's not done with his work yet.
but it's coming. You have never, ever broken a promise, and we trust that you'll fulfill this one soon. So we may not be at the day where wolves lie down with sheep and babies play in cobra pits. But somehow you are the one who could pull it off. So we long for you to do so soon. For those in here who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known in this moment? Open eyes to see and ears to hear. Draw men and women into your kingdom this morning by your grace. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and respond.